Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Now, the Canadian Football League has a, a long and storied history, but it's also a league that's had some pretty big ups and downs. And perhaps we'll look back on these last couple of years as one of those real downtimes. I mean, not having a season, the financial pressure that's put on a lot of clubs, and you know, maybe we fully don't understand the ramifications of that. The league is back this year, obviously. Tonight, as a matter of fact, in Toronto, Uh, for the Argos game tonight. They're going to be honoring the 1991 Toronto Argonauts who won the Grey Cup that year. There was a lot more to that team in that season, though, beyond just the fact that they won the Grey Cup. In fact, our next guest argues that it was one of the wildest seasons in CFL history. Paul Woods is a journalist, an author, a Canadian football historian, and is the author of the new book, Year of the Rocket, John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, and a Crooked uh, crooked Tycoon, and the craziest season in football history. Paul Woods, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Great to be here, Rob. Thank you. So we flash back to 1991, and, and to put it in context, I mean, this was right before the, the U.S. expansion experiment, but this was at a time when, you know, the league was... In, in trouble, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's great for, for you to set that context because, you know, it, it, people often look back at 91 and, you know, with, with what happened with the Argos as kind of a golden age. And in some ways it was, but, you know, in 1985, the Calgary Stampeders came close to going out of business. Your, your listeners will know all about that. The ones that were around then certainly will remember it. In 87, the Alouettes folded. Uh, even in 1991, when, when we had this, this ownership group came into Toronto and got built up all kinds of excitement, the Ottawa Rough Riders went bankrupt in mid-season. Yeah. Uh, and the Calgary Stampeders were floundering around looking for an owner. And, and uh, David Braley, who owned the Hamilton Tiger Cats, was desperate to unload the team. Tiger Cats were drawing 11,000 fans a game at Iverwind Stadium. So, yes, it was, it was not a great period leading into 91, that's for sure. So along comes... Wayne Gretzky, John Candy, and of course, Bruce McNall. And really, it was ultimately Bruce McNall who would seem to be the driving force between buying the Toronto Argonauts. He was the owner of the LA Kings, would soon get into his own legal troubles. How and why did this group come to, to own the Argonauts? It's a great question. It was one I was, I, I spent a lot of time exploring and I got, it's funny, I got a lot of different versions of events. You know, people remember it differently. Some people think it was, think it was Bruce's idea. Some think it was Wayne's idea. Some think it was John's idea. Uh, I think that the likeliest story is uh, Bruce McNall, of course, as you said, was the owner of the LA Kings, and he was also on the board of directors at Hollywood Park Racetrack in Los Angeles. And also on that same board of directors was a guy named Harry Ornest, 
former Albertan, who uh, had owned the St. Louis Blues for three years and by 1990 owned the Toronto Argonauts for two years. And one day at Hollywood Park, Harry said to Bruce, hey, I, you own the LA Kings. I've got a football team up in Canada. Are you interested? And Bruce knew nothing about the Argos. He quite, quite openly told me he'd never even heard of them. But he knew that Wayne was from Brantford, which is not far from Toronto. So he asked Wayne, what do you think? And Wayne said, there's only one team worth owning in Canada, Bruce. It's the Argonauts. And John Candy was the King's honorary captain, was going to every game at the Fabulous Forum and sat in the, in the Forum Club alongside Bruce before every game for dinner. And when Bruce told John about it, John's eyes lit up because John grew up in Toronto wanting to play for the Toronto Argonauts. Oh, really? Uh, so, yeah, it all came together. They bought the team, and man, oh, man, did they look to make a big splash. So the book is called Year of the Rocket, and it was one of the, the most significant, one of the craziest signings probably in, in CFL history. Tell us about the Rocket Ismail. Well, yeah, it really was crazy. And looking back on it, even now, 30 years later, it still seems almost hard to believe it happened. Uh, they They outbid... The NFL for the guy who would have been the number one pick in the draft, and they paid him more money than any player in football history on either side of the border. They gave Rocket more money than Joe Montana was making, and at that time, Joe was Joe Montana was the uh, the Super Bowl winning quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. So they they outbid the NFL, which seems unfathomable now, uh, and and paid him a ton and wanted him to be the Wayne Gretzky of the Argonauts and Canadian football. And, yeah, look, he, he came in. He had a great season. You know, he certainly showed why, you know, there was such interest in him. He's a remarkable talent. And, you know, I mean, it, it all seemed to be coming together, right? All of the attention, the glitz, the glamour that, that you know, this ownership group bought, the, the young star. I mean, you know, as mentioned, this team won the Great Cup in 91. It, it all feels kind of storybook in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. It's sort of like the Hollywood, the Hollywood story for that year. Everything, everything yes. fit together. You had, you had the, the celebrity side with Candy and Gretzky. Uh, and of course they brought in Dan Aykroyd and the remnants of the Blues Brothers to play the opening game. And you had various Hollywood type people showing up at games in Toronto. John Candy was going on the road to every city with the Argos played in and, and whipping up interest and excitement. You had the Rocket who had his own form of celebrity by virtue of, of A, being a fantastic player as you, as you allude to, and also being the celebrity, the guy that was the big star at Notre Dame and got paid all this money. And the Argos were a team of, of, of fantastic uh, experienced players. You know, they had Matt Dunnigan, who was at that time the marquee quarterback in the CFL. That was just before Doug Flutie really blew up when he got to Calgary the following year and, and became the man. Uh, they had, they had, you know, Daryl K. Smith and Pinball Clemens and a veteran defense, and they were a fun loving bunch. They did crazy things the day before the game. Instead of practicing, they would dance and, and hip hop and, and do, uh, you know, do uh, backflips on the, on the field, all that sort of stuff. So they really was a circus atmosphere around the Argonauts in 1991. Yeah, I mean, there really was. Um, but, you know, it wasn't It wasn't to be, I guess, maybe beyond that season. There was the magical season, and then things kind of came apart after that. You know, the team wasn't as good. Obviously, Bruce McNall's, uh, you know, situation started to unravel. Were you able to pinpoint kind of where things started to go sideways in Toronto? Well, you know, interestingly enough, they, it, it almost from the beginning, it almost didn't work financially. I mean, they, they paid Rocket so much money. He was making $4.5 million a season, and the salary cap for an entire team was $3 million. So he was, he was making like a, a team and a half worth of money himself. 
And what that meant was there was, they had no hope of breaking even. I mean, they had visions. McNall had visions of, of selling out Skydome every game, 54,000 seats. They got 41,000 for the home opener. Then their crowds were in the 30s, which by today's standards would be phenomenally sure, good. Yeah. But at the time, it was not enough to, 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 to make the, the team profitable. And they also discovered very early on that as good as Rocket Ismail was on the field, he did not have the, the right, he wasn't the right guy to be the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian football. He, he did not like talking to the press. He was very shy. He wanted to be a great teammate and a player. He did not want to be the spokesperson for the entire league. And by paying him that much money, they really needed him to do that. So they had to, as I say in the book, that they had to, both John Candy and Wayne Gretzky had to have a, a talk with, with Rocket pretty early on in year one about, like, Rocket, you gotta, you've got to be doing these media things. You've got to be doing this stuff. And he's saying, guys, I don't know how. I don't know how, and, which wasn't quite true because he had done some of that at Notre Dame. Uh, but so, so they, they found out that, you know, we didn't – Gretzky told me, you know, how, how stunned he and John were when they, when they had this conversation with Rocket and they, they heard this and they're looking at each other like, oh, my God, like, how did we miss this? How did we, <laughs> how did we put all this money into this guy and not check to see whether he had the right personality for the – for the role so yeah. and then you know like any hollywood story it, it, you don't only have good things right it has to have some ups and downs and so while 91 was was all good 92 was mostly all bad rocket lost interest they had the infamous incident the, the argos actually built up a little bit of a rivalry for a couple of years with the stampeders and and uh, it was triggered by in the in the game in 91 in calgary where dan wicklam of the stampeders basically concussed Rocket with a late hit on a punt return. Um, and then, of course, they met in the Grey Cup, and the Argos beat the, the Stamps on Rotten, thanks in part to Rocket's kickoff return. And then in the return match the following year in Toronto, Calgary by then had Doug Flutie. The Argos were having a bad season. Rocket was losing interest. The team was, had a lot of injuries. Matt Donegan was gone. And the Stampeders kicked their butts 31 nothing in Toronto. And late in that game, there was a fight, and Rocket stomped on the head of Andy McVeigh. It was like the, the, you go from the high of everything going right of winning the Grey Cup to the low of your, your star player, the marquee player in the league, stomping on a guy's head. Well, and of course, and toward the tail end of all of this, you had the, the tragedy of uh, John Candy dying. That was, uh, I think that was early in 94, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And in fact, that's, that's really kind of one of the sad parts of the story, yeah. because John genuinely loved the Argonauts. He was, they've had a lot of owners. They've been around for almost 150 years. It's 148 years yeah. this year. And, and there's only one owner that loved the team the way John Candy did, and that was John Candy. He was, he was all in that year. Uh, and then when, when Bruce, you alluded to Bruce's financial problems, they started to really, the walls started really closing in on Bruce in 93. And so he, he decided to put the Argonauts up for sale. He was desperate for cash to pay off some of his many, many debts. Uh, but he told the team's uh, C- chief operating officer, Brian Cooper, don't tell John we're selling it. Uh, and so John didn't find out until very late in the game that the Argos were for sale. He made a, a sort of a half-hearted stab at trying to see if he could put together an ownership group of his own. Uh, wasn't able to do it. There wasn't time. 
And then before you know it, he was dead. He died in, a, in Mexico on a film shoot. And it's a really, it's, it's the sad part of the story. I often think back, what would, what would have been different if Bruce, if John had known that the team was for sale, maybe he would have put together an ownership group of his own. Maybe he wouldn't have gone to Mexico. Maybe he wouldn't have had a heart attack and died. I mean, that's obviously hindsight. And, and you know, you can't, you can't wonder about somebody's health. He was either, you know, we're all going to die at some point. But I still think it's the saddest part of the story that the one guy who, of, of all of them, who actually loved the Argonauts didn't you know saw the team sold from underneath them and then died two weeks later. Obviously, you know, I mean, Bruce McDonald was convicted of some some serious charges, uh, you know, fraud related charges, obviously. Yep. And it is an interesting aspect to the story that Wayne Gretzky still remained close to him, loyal to him, despite all of that. But just to be clear, there's no indication that there was anything, any funny business going on with the Argonauts, correct? That, that's correct. I mean, there were, there were, it's funny, some people were t- told me that they thought money was being funneled from, from Toronto to help support other parts of the McNall enter- en- enterprise. But I'm dubious about that because they were not making money, right? So it's, right. how can you, how can you funnel money that isn't there? Yeah. Um, I mean, Bruce's, Bruce's uh, legend, his, his, the stuff that he did is legendary. You know, he, his fraud was, was a, a quarter of a billion dollars when it was all added up. And he, he served hard time in, in Lompoc and other penitentiaries down there. And you're right. Wayne, Wayne's still loyal to him. Um, and in fact, Bruce is an extremely lovable guy. You know, he's, <laughs> I say in the book, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a very lovable guy but he's also very crooked. Well, it's, I mentioned in the introduction, so tonight they're, they're going to have a ceremony to, to honor this team, which won the Great Cup. It's the 30th anniversary. I don't know. Are they really going to be able to truly honor just all of this? What, what are you expecting tonight? Well, I mean, I, I actually helped the Argonaut organization put together a video that's going to be played at the at the stadium tonight, and and I mean, it 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 doesn't really get into the Bruce McNall story at all, and it doesn't talk about John Candy dying, but it certainly pays very good tribute to John. Uh, you know, he really is kind of the beating heart of the whole story, uh, and Gretzky's there, and and obviously, you know, the on-field stuff is there, and there yeah. was. There was a lot of great on-field stuff uh, in '91. It, yeah, it went sour in '92 and '93, but but it was it really was the, the wildest year. I I say that uh, you know a century and a half of Argonaut football. They've had they've had at least one better team. The '96 '97 Argonauts when when we were able to sort of take, take Doug Flutie away from Calgary and get him <laughs> right. for two years. They that was an unstoppable, unbeatable team. Uh, but '91 was the most incredible year. We're never going to see its like again. It never happened. Anything, nothing like it ever happened before and nothing like it's ever going to happen again well, the book is called year of the rocket paul woods thanks so much for making some time for us here today really appreciate this i really appreciate it as well rob thank you all the best uh that is uh, journalist author canadian football historian paul woods uh the full title year of the rocket john candy wayne gretzky a crooked tycoon in the craziest season in football history 30 years ago yeah that team went on the way to the great cop that uh young rocket ismail had a great season the glitz, the glamour, it all came together. And then it uh, kind of fell apart. It's quite a story. Uh, Year of the Rocket uh, is the book. Thanks again to Paul Wood. By the end of October, everyone 12 or older on a plane or train within Canada should be fully vaccinated. Well, good afternoon, folks. That was uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier today as the government announced these uh, vaccine mandate policies that they talked about during the election. It's going to apply to public sector workers. And as you heard just there, it is going to apply to those 12 and up who are traveling in Canada by plane or by train. 
Now, I think there's some logic to that approach. I, I certainly think there's broad support for these kinds of vaccine mandates, which I think is why the liberals have become so enthusiastic about them. However, there's still the question of how all of this is going to work. So, for example, it is going to be up to the airlines, it's going to be up to Via Rail to come up with their own plans or systems for how this is going to work, what travelers need to show them. We've got a patchwork right now across the country of various provinces in terms of what they require for proof of vaccination and what they provide. There's been a lot of controversy here in Alberta about that, for example. We don't have a federal vaccine passport system. This is information the provinces have, and there isn't anything in place to coordinate all of this. As our next guest wrote uh, back in the summer, leaked presentations reveal that Canada won't have a national COVID-19 vaccine passport system until December 2021 at the earliest. So if this is going to be a go, this uh, requirement as of the end of this month, how's all this going to work? Joining us on the line this afternoon is uh, freelance journalist Justin Ling, who, of course, was following the announcement today and, as mentioned, has written a lot about this issue. Justin, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. So, like I say, I think, you know, the optics of this, the politics of this, that the liberals are, are keenly aware of, Canadians support this. But in terms of implementing all of this, how thought out is the approach here? Uh, in a word, not very. Um, I think it, it's fairly clear that the government has... Uh, it's head in the right spot. I mean, you know, this is the way things are going. Even uh, provinces that have uh, resisted the idea of a vaccine passport, like Saskatchewan and Alberta, obviously have, have seen the light and have seen the wisdom um, in, in, in both creating, uh, you know, spaces where only vaccinated people are present and simultaneously sort of incentivizing people who are hesitant about getting the jab to finally go get their vaccine. So uh, pretty much every jurisdiction in Canada, I believe, has come around to the idea of a vaccine passport. Um, but what is really sort of difficult and where sort of the, uh, the, the, the complexity is, is figuring out how each of those provinces work together and figuring out how people are going to uh, travel abroad you know, with those proof of vaccines. Obviously, other countries, uh, the EU, uh, parts of the U.S., uh, various other countries are going to require that Canadians coming over show a proof of vaccination that can be read and verified. Now, the federal government kind of initially suggested that it was going to take lead on this issue. Uh, it even awarded a multi-million dollar contract to Deloitte uh, late last year uh, to try to create some sort of federal apparatus that would help it uh, validate uh, provincial vaccines, that would help it, um, you know, uh, let the, basically enable the provinces to, um, to create those QR codes that will allow people um, to go to a bar, restaurant, have that scanned, have it verified right on the spot that will let them go through a border checkpoint in, let's say, Germany and have a German border guard scan that QR code and say, yep, I can tell that you've had two doses of the Moderna vaccine in PEI, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is that really hasn't come to fruition in any real way. Um, the federal government has sort of pushed standards, expects from the provinces around those QR codes, but it hasn't done anything to help them get there. It hasn't mandated them. It hasn't really provided the logistical support that will be really helpful in this, in this, at this point. Uh, and it hasn't really made any progress, as best I can tell and as best my sources can tell, on, on developing that federal portal that will help it actually validate and create a Governor of Canada-approved vaccine passport. So things are behind, I think it's fair to say, and it's sort of the, up to the provinces to fend for themselves right now. 
Yeah, it feels like the rhetoric's running way ahead of of where the actual infrastructure around all of this is. I mean, ultimately, yeah, I mean, the provinces are responsible for healthcare. The provinces are responsible for vaccination. The provinces have all of these records. So inevitably, this is going to have to involve the provinces. But where where does Ottawa have a role to play here then? Well, you know, there's, there's been consistent concern that if, uh, let's say, you take your New Brunswick uh, proof of vaccination and fly to Czechoslovakia, right, the, the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. um, will the Czech Republic recognize New Brunswick as a jurisdiction that could issue a proof of vaccine? Right. There's some argument to be made that they might not. So what you might actually need is a thing that says Government of Canada, just like a passport. You can't fly to Europe with your driver's license. You need a Government of Canada passport. So... On that front, the federal government has a role to play in making sure that it says Government of Canada on it. Um, The Government of Canada also has a lot of logistical uh, and technological kind of expertise to figure out what other countries are doing, to figure out what an international standard looks like. Provinces don't necessarily have that capacity um, just by virtue of the fact that they rarely deal with international organizations like IATA, um, the International Airline Association. Um, so on that front, you know, Ottawa was supposed to have led the charge, and they recognize this. I've seen leaked uh, presentations that have basically acknowledged that this is Ottawa's job. But at the same time, everything has been moving um, at a glacial pace, and they've sort of been pushing some of these responsibilities off into the provinces. Uh, and in some cases, the airlines, um, the federal government had hoped they would have a standardization across the provinces by mid-fall. Well, we're mid-fall right now, and I can tell you that uh, only four of the provinces are uh, either on this, inter- this good international standard or are close to it. The rest of the provinces are either not pursuing that standard or haven't got there yet or haven't even released their vaccine passport app yet. So it is still a mixed bag, uh, and, and, and fundamentally, it's going to create a lot of complexity. You know, if it, We've already had a lot of cases where Ontarians have gone to Quebec, Quebecers have gone to Alberta, so on and so forth. Well, uh, you know, the status quo right now is you're basically just waving around your app and you know, the person checking uh, the vaccine status at the, at the bar is shrugging their shoulders and says, good enough. Yeah. Well, if we get to a point where we actually want to be able to verify those vaccines, we need systems that speak to each other. And right now, these systems do not speak to each other by and large. Some provinces are getting there, but many provinces are not. And the federal government is basically doing nothing to actually create that consistency. Yeah, I mean, here in Alberta, for example, initially, you know, people were, were supposed to hang on to the piece of paper they got when they got their vaccine. Then we had something that you could print off or take a screenshot of. And and that was controversial because people could edit it. It was a bit of a mess. Supposedly, we're moving toward an app. We don't have it yet. So someone from Alberta who's going to fly, uh, you know, an Air Canada to Toronto or is going to take a, a via rail uh, train ride what are they supposed to show? I guess ultimately it's up to the airlines, up to, to via rail to figure that out? Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, maybe the solution is very low tech. Maybe the solution is really just uh, a system where you go and say, I promise I'm vaccinated. Here is some documentation that proves it. Mm-hmm. Please trust me. If I'm lying, you can throw me in jail. I mean, that, that's more or less you know, what we do for a lot of declarations to the airports anyway. Um, so to some degree, maybe that will be just the solution we'll have to abide by. But if governments are insisting on a validation process, a process where you actually can check and make sure someone's vaccinated, well, then that's, that's going to require a lot more work. And there's also the issue of recognizing what constitutes fully vaccinated. So in Nova Scotia, for example, uh, if you have the Sinovac 
vaccine from, from China that had been recognized by the WHO, well, you're fully vaccinated. In Ontario, they don't recognize the Sinovac vaccine unless you've had another dose of an mRNA vaccine. So to some degree, provinces also still want to have control over what constitutes fully vaccinated. So if you show up with your QR code in Ontario from Nova Scotia and they scan it and look at it and go, oh, you only have Sinovac, I'm sorry, you're not fully vaccinated. That is a power that the province wants to keep. And if you only have this paper record that says, don't worry, I'm fully vaccinated, well, then maybe you can't do that as effectively. Or if you can't scan someone's QR code, maybe you can't do that effectively. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity here. And, and what's frustrating about all of this is that we've known this was going to be a problem. Yeah. I have been, I've been writing about this now for nearly a year. Uh, this is not a surprise to the federal government. This is not a surprise to the provinces. Everyone should have seen this coming, and yet so many of them did not, did not adequately prepare, and now are scrambling. I mean, the, Trudeau, the announcement today from Trudeau was a lot of, don't worry, we'll figure it out later, and the solutions will come down the road, or it's someone else's job. Um, and it's really frustrating to watch because uh, there's been a bunch of epidemiologists, doctors, public health officials who have been ringing this alarm for years now, and nobody listened to them. And now we're, we're kind of reaping the dividends from that. Um, <laughs> the, the kind of the last uh, kind of absurd part of all of this is that the federal government has also announced plans uh, to require federal public servants to be vaccinated. Right. The problem is they have no capacity to read or validate those proof of vaccines for its own employees. So what it's doing instead is creating a, 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 an internal registry of attestation. So every federal public servant will have to log on to a web portal and sign some sort of document, and it will be tracked internally. But at no point will the actual proof be uploaded or will anything be scanned or, or checked. It'll just be some kind of uh, internal signature that says, don't worry, I'm fully vaccinated, and if I'm lying, you can fire me. So was there anything you heard, either in the announcement or the questions, that at least spoke to some of this uncertainty, that you heard something for the first time and said, oh, okay, that's where this is going, or I was wondering about that, or here's some clarity. Did, did you get anything like that today? No, I mean, I mean, I mean, to be honest, the federal government seems pretty confident that everyone else can do it more effectively than, than the federal government can. And, and to, be, to be totally honest, maybe they're right. Uh, people who I've spoken to both in government and industry have said everything federal has moved so slow, maybe it's fine. Maybe everyone else can just figure it out because the federal government can't. And and I, I'm, I'm picking up on that reality for sure um, from the federal government. Um, they've sort of recognized that it's up to the airlines to be a rail to figure out what validation looks like, not their job. Uh, they sort of said the provinces have to do the last mile of, of creating consistency amongst their apps, not their job. Um, you know, even these plans for a national portal, this one I mentioned earlier, it might be abandoned. Um, I've definitely heard indication from inside the government that they're just not going to get it done in any sort of you know, expeditious manner, and they're going to give up. And I think, frankly, that, that, is, that is the tone I'm hearing from this government. Uh, they, they just, this government federal government writ large just does not do technology procurement well and i think we're seeing the limitations of that you know top to bottom what, what about by the way we do have the arrive can app that people are supposed to use <laughs> if they're traveling back to canada yeah. and there's there's a part of that app where you can basically upload your your vaccine information i mean is, is that useful in in any of these contexts here 
Well, yes and no. I mean, the government has advertised this as a stopgap measure. You even heard at one point um, uh, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair say uh, the ArriveCan app actually validates proof of vaccine. Hmm. That's not true. I mean, the ArriveCan app essentially just takes a picture of your vaccine record. That's all it does. It doesn't do anything above and beyond that. Um, so is it useful? Sure, insofar as it lets you take a picture and send it to a border agent before you arrive. Um, but it, it doesn't do much beyond that. So, it, you, again, if, if we're kind of just confident and happy saying that a picture of a, of a paper record or that paper record itself is good enough, well, then great, we're in a great spot right now. But if we keep insisting that we need something above and beyond that, we need a technological solution to validate and you know, to check and to assess uh, the degree to which somebody is actually vaccinated or actually fully vaccinated, well, no, the ArriveCan app doesn't do anything for us, nor does, you know, does anything really that the federal government announced today. The federal government today announced uh, it wants everyone to, to, to you know, more or less do their job for it. All right, we'll leave it there. Justin, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for the update on this. Thanks, Rob. All the best. That is uh, freelance journalist and author uh, Justin Ling, uh, who's been following this story, as he says, for some time. And we knew that this was going to be an issue, and I guess the government's... Uh, approaches to just say, well, you know, we'll figure it out. So we get the policy. The idea is that, yeah, we want to require those traveling in this country and train or rail to be vaccinated. We want federal public servants to be vaccinated. How that's all going to work, how that's going to be confirmed, how that's going to be verified. Well, that's another matter indeed. So for public servants, as, as Justin mentioned, the idea here is going to be you will sign an attestation. For those who are traveling by plane or by rail well, that depends. So it'll kind of be up to the, the airlines or via rail or to some extent, I guess, the provinces in terms of what they're provi- prepared to provide. So it's um, a little confusing, to say the least. All right, welcome back. Uh, there's been an ongoing controversy in Alberta around curriculum. And the previous government took a stab at this. Obviously, the uh, current government is taking a stab at this and, and in the in the process, I think, kind of rebuking what the previous government had attempted to do. There's been some political debate around some of the proposed changes to social studies curriculum. And I, we've certainly seen some school boards say that they really don't want to uh, pilot this this curriculum. There's been less focus on the math side of it. I mean, math is is generally not that political. I know there's been some controversy around so-called discovery math and and whether that's kind of... Um, been dragging down Alberta's math scores or math performance. Um, there's a call for a review of the review, essentially, kind of a redo of this proposed curriculum. Uh, math Minds is a partnership between researchers at the University of Calgary's Oakland School of Education, a number of school districts in the Calgary area, also a not-for-profit uh, uh, math resource developer, say that, yes, we need to change and improve the curriculum, but what we have right now kind of misses the mark. Uh, you can read more at structuringinquiry.com. Uh, joining us on the line this afternoon is uh, Dr. Brent Davis. He's a professor of the Workland School of Education at the U of C. Professor Davis, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I, I guess it should be stated at the outset. I mean, there, there is an agreement here on, on your part and, and uh, math minds here that, that there is a need for a review or, or an update of the curriculum. What, what is the problem as it stands right now in Alberta with regard to mathematics education that, that needs to be addressed? 
Uh, yeah, that's not a question that I can answer in a sentence, but let me take a stab at it. Sure. Um, the uh, uh, Ministry of Education has made this commitment to knowledge-rich curriculum, and that's a phrase that's out there. It, it popped up about 10 years ago in the field to say that curriculum should attend to a couple critical issues. One is that whatever's in the curriculum, the topics covered should be really relevant, meaningful, it should be powerful knowledge, it should be, um, you know, it, it should be what we need to, to understand today. And the second thing is that people should understand that knowledge deeply. It's not about superficial teaching, it's not about mastering of procedures, it is about knowing it deeply. So we're on board with that. that we, uh, it's, it's just important to have a mathematics curriculum that is timely, relevant, and that people understand it. But um, they don't really follow through on that. The curriculum that is presented is uh, kind of a throwback. It is regressive. It, it's not clear that, it's, that they've adapted it to emergent needs, and it, it seems that it's focused on kind of shallow, superficial understanding. So. Well, I mean, further to that, because I, I think there's kind of, a, you know, a, um, maybe a simplistic view of all of this that, you know, we shifted to this fad of discovery math, math scores suffered as a result. Uh, we need to correct course here. I think that's kind of what it's been boiled down to in, in, in terms of how the government has explained this or how people perceive it. I mean, is, is there any kind of grain of truth there? Uh, you know... Again, the sound bites aren't easy here, but discovery nice. math and discovery learning, that's kind of a straw man that's been thrown up there. And what it does is set up this dichotomy. On the one side, we have traditional teaching that's, that's teacher-centered, that's focused on facts, that's embedded in practice, that's, that's just, you know, it's, it's, the, it's kind of the, the comic book version of uh, school mathematics that, that we find in movies and everywhere else. And then this imagined discovery math, discovery learning that's this sort of willy-nilly wandering around topics um, that's child-directed. And so, okay, no one really teaches that way, and I know of no academic that advocates it. So we, we have this one or the other thing that politicians are pushing out there, right. and both ignore um, knowledge-rich curriculum, both ignore the cognitive science, both ignore the last century of research into how people learn and understand mathematics. We know a lot about it, but unless there's a curriculum that is not genuinely knowledge-rich, there is no way that teachers are going to be able to teach that way. So... But in terms of, though, the concern about declining math scores, that certainly seems to be true, right? I mean, Alberta has excelled in this this realm in the past. That That's not really true anymore. Is that fair to say? No, that's not fair to say no. at all. And those claims are made on the basis of international, international comparison testing like TIMS and uh, PISA. Um, in fact, uh, Alberta has... Stayed, it pretty much stayed the course over the past, uh, well, I've been following over the past 10 or 15 years. Um, you know, a decade ago, Alberta was on top of the English-speaking world in terms, if, if we were treated as a separate jurisdiction. Um, our scores really haven't changed that much, at least not in any major uh, statistically significant way. What has changed is that other jurisdictions have gotten ahead of us. Okay. So we've, we've slipped in the rankings, we haven't slipped in the performance. And um, what we, that to me says, if we're going to pay any attention to that at all, then 
look at what other jurisdictions are doing. Why why are people getting ahead of us? And that has everything to do with their actually attending to the research. They actually have knowledge-rich curriculum. So... Well, okay, so what you propose seems rather logical. Alberta's fallen behind these other countries. Let's look at what they're doing. Does this draft curriculum do that? No, this draft, it does exactly the opposite, and that's our frustration with it. It's, uh, it is regressive. It seems to be appealing. Like, the, the fact that it is lodged in this rhetoric of traditional teaching versus discovery math, which, again, is that's a strong man. That's a false dichotomy. If we are arguing on that basis, we are totally ignoring the fact that the real debate is happening elsewhere. It's what is the cognitive science saying about how people learn mathematics, and what, are, what is cultural studies saying about what is important mathematics right now and how, to, how we come to understand that. Neither of those topics is addressed meaningfully in this document. Well, and... and- what you propose in this letter is is not just some changes here and there. What we need is is to kind of go back to the drawing board then. What we need is a knowledge-rich curriculum. I mean, Alberta Education has committed to that. That's kind of their opening statement. We, and so we embrace that. We endorse that. We say, yes, let's do knowledge-rich curriculum and let's follow through. Like Google knowledge-rich curriculum. Knowledge-rich curriculum is about relevant knowledge for the here and now that's context-aware and not going past surface learning like once we've identified that knowledge we should understand it deeply so yeah absolutely let's go there but this curriculum doesn't take us there so what what does the next step need to be what are you calling on the education minister to do uh, to um, be true to that commitment to knowledge-rich curriculum. It is to, uh, let's, let's take a serious dive into shifts in, in knowledge. What, so the, the, the current curriculum is actually has some eerie similarities to curricula developed with the, the first public schools at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Right? They're very focused on the skills that you need to survive uh, in a factory job uh, three or 400 years ago. They're not reflective of um, the sorts of understandings you need in the information age and in a knowledge economy. So, step one, let's take a serious dive into what relevant mathematical knowledge might be today. And once we do that, let's take a serious dive into the last century of research into mathematical education and structure a curriculum that enables the um, enables teachers to take advantage of the that research and right and again to be clear i mean we're we're talking about the k-6 curriculum here and and i think it's important to to understand it in that context because this is about laying those foundations understanding how young children learn what they need to learn to build that success for for later years uh so how crucial is it then in in that sense to make sure that we get it right at, at at these you know younger years these early grades well, it's incredibly crucial. That's why we paid so much attention to and, and went into such detail in our report. You know, I have to say, one of the things that we do in our report is index what we are talking about to the research, both to the, research, the cultural studies research and, and what's good to know right now, and the cognitive science research into how people learn and understand mathematics. We actually had the opportunity to meet with the Ministry of Education about a previous draft of this report, and the, we, we requested that meeting before we put because said, look, um, this is we we've researched this. This is what we're basing our arguments on. You're clearly accessing a completely different way of thinking. 
to talk about research you're basing your uh, claims on. And and they granted us a meeting. So we had a, a meeting in early August, and we repeatedly requested, you know, what are you basing this on? Right. Not one single study was cited. They didn't in cognitive cultural studies at all, not once. Like it was, it was a little bit disconcerting. We kept asking, they bring us off, and so that's. I mean, that's why the report is out there. That's why it goes into such depth. That's why we index it to all the research that. Well, much of the research we could have gone to into a lot more depth than the research out there. There's a lot out there, but they did not cite one study. And our impression is that it's kind of based on opinion and common sense rather than deep research in, into human learning. That's disconcerting. Well, people can read more for themselves. Uh, the website is structuringinquiry.com, and I guess we'll see if, if the government has uh, any kind of rethink uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, Dr. Davis, appreciate your insight in all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. And thanks for having me. Okay, that's uh, Professor Brent Davis uh, with the Brooklyn School of Education, University of Calgary. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.